1: This is a CBC podcast.
2: Hi, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Welcome to the Sunday Magazine podcast, featuring the stories we first brought you Sunday, December twenty fourth, on CBC Radio. hard to feel hopeful in a world rife with conflict, but Paul Rogers says there's reason to believe in prospects for peace, even if it's tough. The Peace Studies professor joins me first up. After that, if you want to achieve a better future, you've got to imagine one first. That's what Oliver Jeffers does in his latest book. The beloved author and illustrator will share his vibrant visions with us. Later on, we'll take time to reflect upon one of the greatest gifts of the holiday season, the food. With a three-course menu all about the politics, passion, and practicality of the stuff we load onto our plates. That's all starting right now on the Sunday Magazine Podcast. It is Christmas Eve, and normally on this day, the town of Bethlehem in the occupied West Bank would be full of thousands of people celebrating at the birthplace of Jesus. But this year, there are no celebrations due to the ongoing conflict between Israelis and Palestinians and the war in Gaza. There are also ongoing wars in Ukraine and in Sudan. Yet even with all these conflicts, Paul Rogers believes there are reasons to be hopeful for peace. Paul's a professor emeritus of peace studies at Bradford University in England. Paul, good morning.
3: Good morning. Nice to be with you.
2: It's been a very difficult two and a half months for millions of people in the Palestinian territories and in Israel. So as this year draws to a close, how are you thinking about this conflict?
3: I think of this conflict was still at a, a very difficult phase. We've had the UN resolution uh, finally go through after the best part of five days of negotiations. But it's a very weak uh, resolution, a kind of multi-compromise. And even then, Russia, and particularly the United States, uh, were not able to agree to it. They basically abstained. They didn't oppose it. and They didn't use the veto at least. But that was really about improving the humanitarian situation, not actually moving to a, a humanitarian pause or even more so a ceasefire. So we're still, I fear, at a relatively early stage. Um, the suffering has been massive. Obviously, the Israelis suffered hugely on the 7th of October. We'll never forget that. Uh, with about 850 civilians... 350 uh, police and army people all killed, and we still have the hostages, 100 or more who are still held by Hamas. But on the other hand, what has happened in Gaza is, is quite extraordinary. Large parts of the whole area have been more or less flattened. There's not much left than rubble. Uh, we're finding that the Palestinians are being... Eased into a much smaller part of what is already a small territory, and the direct losses are something like twenty to twenty one thousand killed and fifty five thousand injured, and probably another three or four thousand people whose bodies have not been recovered because they 're under the rubble. There are also major problems with distribution of humanitarian relief. So it's a very difficult situation. But we are in the position where the Israelis themselves, under the current government, the Netanyahu government, uh, feel that this is the way to go forward, that they have to deal with Hamas once and for all. And the very big um, question is, can you actually deal with Hamas in terms of destroying it? Can it be destroyed? Or is it more of an idea... And I think the Israelis are now starting to realize that that may be something of the problem.
2: So let's break down some of the things that you said there. Let's start with this UN resolution. As you say, it took the whole week to get to Friday when the UN Security Council passed a resolution aimed at extending humanitarian pauses and corridors. It did not call for an immediate ceasefire. The US abstained. Uh, Russia also abstained because it wanted that call for an immediate ceasefire. So here we are. We have a... UN Security Council resolution that's been adopted weaker than what many parties wanted it to be. What difference might this really make at this point?
3: I think it'll make some difference in that it will be a demonstration that there is very wide support for an early end to the war. Um, And that, I think, has accumulated over the last four to five weeks. It was strong a while ago, but is now much stronger. Whether that is putting direct pressure on the Israelis, it's very difficult to say. We are in this rather unusual position. We have a a very hard-line government. I think virtually everybody would agree that. Probably the most hardest-line Israeli government since the War of Independence 75 years ago. It also has the balance of power held by two parties, one very pro-Zionist and another which is deeply religious. Uh, They believe absolutely um, that Israel must completely defeat Hamas. And so you have this rare situation, and they are backed by most Israelis still, perhaps less so than two or three weeks ago... But certainly the majority of Israelis still support them. And that goes back to the absolute horror that the Israelis had with those attacks. And we should never underestimate that. It doesn't help us at all explain why the Israelis are using these very, very tough methods. But it does explain the, the change in mood within the country. Uh, it's a government that wasn't very popular uh, two, three months ago for other reasons. But it is there in charge. And it is very much in leading in the military direction. So, That, I think, explains a lot of it. What it doesn't explain is why Israel is not really prepared to consider a change, at least at this stage. That may change, but for the moment, I fear not.
2: So Israel says it's going to continue with its war until Hamas is, quote, defeated in the Gaza Strip. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has been saying that for for, for weeks now. A couple of days ago, Paul, you wrote a piece in um, The Guardian, I think it was, and in that piece you asserted that the... Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, were failing in their goals. How are they failing as you see it?
3: Well, as information comes out, and this is all from uh, maybe unofficial sources, but one's using military-available information from within Israel. There's are is, this is not sort of outside people on the blog. There are indications that the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, are finding the war on the ground a lot more difficult than expected. It shouldn't come as a big surprise, because when the Israelis were last involved in ground warfare in Gaza back at the time of Operation Protective Edge in 2014. They did put forces into Gaza to try and um, take over the entrances to the tunnels and also the launch sites. And they actually had that led by their elite brigade, the Golani Brigade. And that brigade suffered pretty serious casualties. The Israelis resorted more to very widespread use of air power then. It's the same brigade which has gone into Gaza, along with many others I should say. They have many, many troops in there. But that brigade also has suffered really quite severe casualties, even at a time when parts of Gaza were apparently cleared of Hamas. There are other indications as well, Indications from Israeli press sources, major newspapers, not just sort of Facebook pieces or anything, that the actual casualties the Israeli army are suffering are much worse than they're actually saying. Uh, The deaths are not hugely high, but they're losing now, getting on for 500 people. But there have been thousands who've actually been wounded, at least half of them very seriously. We're talking about maybe... Two to 3,000 people seriously wounded, maimed for life and maybe 6,000 wounded overall. So these are losses. I mean, they're small compared to what the Palestinians are experiencing but for an elite army like Israel's army and basically made up of citizen warriors it's come as something of a shock. It's not something the government will talk about I'm afraid but within defence circles and with analytical circles it is something which people are watching a lot more than even two or three weeks ago, which is why I just drew attention to that in that piece in The Guardian.
2: Hmm. This war has been going on for 11 weeks now. In that time, at least 20,000 people have been killed inside Gaza, according to the hamas Health Ministry. Another 50,000 injured, hundreds of thousands of people displaced. There are shortages of food and water. There are constant bombardments by the Israelis. In your view, Paul Rogers, to what extent is the world paying the right amount, if I can put it that way, attention to the humanitarian toll of this war and the impact on Palestinian civilians.
3: No, I'm afraid it isn't. And that is despite the real entreaties coming from the United Nations, right through from the top from the Secretary General. You have the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, which works in Gaza. You have the International Health World Health Organization. You have the World Food Programme, Also saying that the the situation is dire, there's a health emergency now there, not just emerging, but actually there. Um, There's a lot of anger, I think, in many parts of Europe. Huge anger, one has to say, across the Arab Middle East. There's no doubt about that. And some of the leaders of some of the uh, countries are actually getting very uneasy about the anger felt within their own populations. But it really does come down to the United States, which really holds the key to all of this. Uh, Britain is an interesting case. It's very strong in its support for the US, including the main opposition party under Keir Starmer, although he actually is coming under a lot of pressure within his party. But the ultimate thing is that in spite of the huge demonstrations going on, um, the United States, whatever it is to say in private, in public is really not moving fast enough... and the Israelis do not feel sufficiently beholden... to make the changes that so many people are insisting on. That may change, I think, because the situation is clearly getting worse, not better... but for the moment, there's very little indication that the international community... in the shape of the uh, United Nations, in spite of what the UN heads saying is not in a position to move fast enough or to have the influence that would change things on the ground, at least at the moment.
2: And I guess the other, one of the other key questions that's lingering, Paul Rogers, that um, Netanyahu has been asked and hasn't answered clearly, or at all, some would argue, is what happens after this conflict? You know, he said the other day that Gaza would not become, quote, Hamistan or Fatastan, meaning that neither Hamas nor the Palestinian party Fatah, which rules in the occupied West Bank, would would govern in Gaza. Meanwhile, we've seen support for Hamas in the West Bank surging. So is there a way forward on that question, of who can govern Gaza when this war... Um, comes to an end?
3: That, I think, is a very difficult one to answer. I mean, if you go back uh, earlier this evening, uh, earlier today, I was looking at what was being said in the first two or three weeks of the war. And what appeared to be the case then was that within the higher levels of the Israeli government, what they were anticipating was really moving the Gazans into maybe quite a small part of, of the Gaza Strip and really controlling it extremely ...toughly, almost like a sort of a... ...not even a fully open prison... but a, a, ...and closed, not in the sense behind... ...sort of a single wall... ...but in a way sort of hived off in some way. Um, and certainly many people in the Cabinet... Uh, ...on the more um, uh, far-right parties... ...were basically saying, well, what you really need to do... ...is to clear Gaza of all its 2.3 million people... ...and get them to resettle themselves... Uh, ...with international support, I suppose in uh, in the Sinai Desert. But that simply isn't going to happen. And as you mentioned, the other thing which people are missing is the increase in pretty severe instability um, in the West Bank, um, uh, part of Israel that I know pretty well, the occupied territories for, what, nearly 50 years. And really, things are getting very difficult there because of the insistence of the settlers that Palestinians must move out to make more room for them. We have the situation in southern Lebanon where Hezbollah so far has held on to its weapons and its missiles and the rest. But back down in, in Yemen, you're getting the threat to shipping. So there's always a risk it will escalate. And I'm afraid it's a long-winded answer. Nobody seems to have a decision to take about what happens next. They're playing it almost by ear on the Israeli side, hoping, I think, that they can do such damage to Hamas that it will not be a problem. Many people do not think that's possible because you're actually dealing with an idea which still has a lot of support, as you were saying earlier on in this discussion, within the West Bank. Support for Hamas has actually surged quite remarkably i'm afraid so there's no direct answer and from the moment it does not seem to be thought through which i think is a real worrying part of, of this whole conflict
2: you know paul rogers we're sitting here on christmas eve um you know time i think whether you're secular or religious that a lot of people think of or hope for a world of, of peace and we have the situation in the middle east we haven't even talked about um <laughs> the situation in europe with the ongoing war in ukraine um the world again seems to be increasingly perhaps divided on the question of Ukraine. We see Western powers withholding or not giving financial aid like it had been in the in the earlier months with the u s and and uh, the eu Do you see that conflict kind of holding its status quo for the coming months, or do you see? something giving there that can find a way towards peace?
3: I think it's we're unlikely to see anything give within the conflict because it does seem to be stalemated, at least through the winter months. It would probably be March or April before things change to any extent on the ground. It may well be that at some stage, um, feelers will be put out and some kind of negotiated settlement might, just might, become possible. It'll be very difficult for Ukraine to take. But the problem is, of course, that there was always the issue within Ukraine of part of the Russian-speaking minority in eastern Ukraine having a very, very close affinity with Moscow, with Russia. And uh, in a way... The idea that the Russians will have no role whatsoever in Ukraine is not something that these people in eastern Ukraine can accept. But against that, the damage that has been done by the Russian offensive is such that you are asking a huge amount of Ukraine as a whole to accept some sort of settlement, uh, probably involving Crimea at the very least, staying with Russia. In the final analysis, it's probably got to happen because neither side can win in the sense that Russia can put all the force it wants into it, but NATO will be losing too much of its own status to allow Ukraine to be defeated. On the other hand, if Ukraine, with NATO help, was to make huge progressions, progress unexpectedly against Russia, then the Russians could simply escalate and start talking about, you know, chemical or even nuclear weapons. So it has to end in negotiations. Uh, It may be that as winter proceeds and as the stalemate continues, then it may be possible for some of the really skillful backroom negotiators and mediators to begin to bring the sides together. That I think is the best we can hope for at the moment. Otherwise, the risk is that the war will go on for another full year with all the loss of life and damage that that entails. There's a possibility that that may be an area where things improve. But at the moment, it's pretty uncertain that that will happen.
2: The world feels very unstable. This year has been a rough one. It hasn't, I don't know, I felt this way, I think, uh, in a long time. You're the peace guy, Paul Rogers. I'm sure people ask you all the time, um, you know, do you see any hope in these conflicts and these so- solutions to these conflicts that can, that might be found?
3: It's going to be very difficult for these two particular conflicts. And one has to say, we know it's not nice to face, but this is a very successful war for the world's arms industries. The business is absolutely booming. World military expenditure is going up quite markedly. Um, The stock prices of the major uh, companies right across, not just across the Western world, but more generally, are really in a very good state. And so there's one uh, sort of sector of society which is actually doing pretty well. And that, in some ways, doesn't mean that it militates against settlements, but it does, it does make things, I think, slightly more difficult. There are other pressures coming in which we tend normally to forget about. I mean, no doubt at some stage, somehow, both in the case of Gaza and in Ukraine, uh, it will be possible to come to a solution. Um, it may be messy, it may take months, or possibly in the case of Ukraine, years, but it is likely to happen. You then move on also to what else are uh, the big trends in the long term. Well, you mentioned at the start the, the war in Sudan, the even greater problems in Congo and uh, DRC, where about 5 million people have been killed in the last 10 years or so. Whereas in the other major conflict, a retracted one in Myanmar, if anything, um, the military government, which is in power, is beginning to lose its grip, and the rebel forces seem to be gaining. But essentially, they're different problems. We don't put anything like enough resources into these problems themselves uh, as a world community. And the United Nations, I think, is particularly weak at the present time. Against all of that, then there are the major big issues which are facing us in the longer term. And that is a world which is more and more divided economically. But even crucially, the big one of all, of course, is climate breakdown. And that seems to be a problem for the fairly near future, not the far future. And there there is some good news because we now know that it is technically possible to decarbonise an economy much quicker than we thought even 10 years ago. But that really takes us into this much wider area of where the world is going from here.
2: Hmm. Look, you've studied not just the idea of peace, but also the ways to achieve it for four plus decades now, Paul Rogers. Do you think about peace differently now than, say, even a decade ago?
3: Um, I don't think so. I mean, if you're in this kind of study, uh, and I say I've worked in this field for over 40 years, including on political violence and right back to the nuclear era. One thing I would say, though, is if we were having this discussion now in 1983 rather than 2023, in other words, 40 years ago, our huge worry without question would be the risk of a worldwide nuclear war. ...because that was when the final stage of the Cold War was at its worst and most dangerous... ...almost as dangerous as you go back to 1962 and the Cuban Missile Crisis. We got out of that um, partly through the change in Russia, the Gorbachev change... ...partly one senses because of a mood in the West that some way had to be found out of this. The peace movements were, were very strong... But, you know, we were really worried that we'd even get to 1990, and we did, and we got beyond that. We're not out of the nuclear era by a long shot. We have the problem of bioweapons, but it is not at the level we had then. So there are signs of hope. One could say jokingly, I suppose, that people who work in this field in detail for many years, they have three choices personally. They are either, what is it, um, alcoholic, suicidal or optimistic. And there are reasons for cautious (laughs) optimism, because of the capability of humans in a world community which may be divided to come together when they have to. Personally, I think that is going to happen, but it's going to happen not because of these particular wars, but because of the realisation we have to act together. Otherwise, it will be the climate problem that defeats us. Um, that, I think, is the biggest single issue that we face. You know, we have young grandchildren. In fact, we have two grandchildren under the age of one. And they could all be alive. Both of them and our other grandchildren could be alive in the 22nd century. And one hopes that they will look back and say, well, at least in the late 2020s, people began to talk sense about the need to avoid war. Um, and so there's always a cause for optimism. And you do come through these things, as we have in the past. But this is a pretty tough time, one has to admit.
2: We'll have to leave it there, Paul. I always appreciate your analysis. And I, I you know, I, I think at the end of this year, to, to hear you talk about um, at least having a bit of optimism for the coming year... Um, is deeply appreciated. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you very much.
2: Paul Rogers is Professor Emeritus of Peace Studies at England's Bradford University. You're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Tomorrow morning, many kids will be excited to see what's hidden beneath the wrapping paper. Surely some of them will be thrilled to see a book by one of their favorite authors. And one of the most beloved among the little ones is Oliver Jeffers. The author and illustrator is well known for his books, How to Catch a Star, The Day the Crayons Quit. My personal fave is Lost and Found. If you're not familiar with Oliver's work, let me tell you, his books are full of profound messages and incredible art that have inspired a fan base of kids and adults alike around the world over the past two decades. And now Oliver is gifting us all an all-ages book. It's called Begin Again and it explores our human history and dreams for a better future. I was lucky enough to speak with Oliver Jeffers on stage at the Bram and Bluma Appel Salon at the Toronto Reference Library a couple of months ago. Here now is that conversation for you. Who here is a fan of Oliver's? Oh. Probably should have. Thank you. Probably should have asked who isn't a fan. Do
1: you uh, think they'd, My think kids they'd, aren't fans. They, they, <laughs> they don't really care. Um, I was saying to um, somebody who was, I was with earlier there that. Uh, my son went to the library, and we're, we're living back in Northern Ireland these days, and he went to the local library with his school, and he came back that night, and, and he said, Daddy, did you have something to do with a book about crayons? I was like, yeah. He goes, like, I thought that looked like you. <laughs> and I was like, have I never read that to you? And he goes, no.
2: <laughs> what do you read to your kids? Uh, other people's books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay, we'll yeah. talk about what you're reading to them in a bit. Um, I just want to start by sort of setting um, the table by reading a passage for your book, which I've j- jotted down here, which is: the difference between right and better is that being right is about proving the past, while being better is about building the future. Right. Can you expand on that.
1: Absolutely. We moved back to Northern Ireland, and that happened by accident, by the way, because we, in our infinite wisdom, thought we're going to take a year of travel uh, with our kids before they go to school, and we're going to, you know, go around the world. Uh, and we started that in the summer of 2019. <laughs> And so we rented our apartment out in Brooklyn for two years and then uh, set sail and got as far as Japan in February of 2020. Uh, And the shutters of the world came pulled down and we went to the only place that that we could think to go, which was a little apartment that we had in in Northern Ireland. Uh, And we've kind of been there ever since. So being in Northern Ireland and, uh, you know, as somebody who would have considered myself a bleeding heart liberal artist in New York, what really kind of shocked me when I got back to Northern Ireland was I could see from the other side of the ocean back in New York there was a very um, bitter uh, election cycle that was happening and it was like the rhetoric here reminds me of where Northern Ireland was in the 1970s and why is that why are why are people going against their own best interests by trying to to prove that their story is more important than the, somebody else's story or that they were right and and it was like it's, it's holding people back because By you being right it means that somebody else must be wrong And then that person who is wrong or wrong then carries that with them Whereas if you replace the terms right and wrong with better and worse it suddenly becomes very clear What needs to be done in any given scenario and what it is that you actually want so in the case of Northern Ireland, better and worse would be stopping voting in sectarian parties that, that keep us apart. So as you were thinking
2: about that, so in, the, in 2020, how did that lead to this? In other words, what's the genesis for okay. breaking again? It
1: was, it was partly that, that awareness, that realization. But there was another, there was an anecdote um, uh, where we'd just come back. We'd been in Japan, so we knew how serious COVID was going to be being quite aware that uh, all around, everybody thought that the the world is falling apart. And so everything's going pear-shaped. It's it's all broken. And I do think that we have a very short attention span these days. And in thinking about germs, it was like, we forget how far we've actually come in many regards. Like, the first person who suggested invisible things that float through the air make us sick was locked in a mental asylum only a century and a half ago. So we were there. We knew how serious lockdown was going to be other people weren't really buying it crossing the road one day just just in the days before it I, we met an old lady and she had two big bags of shopping And you know she was very elderly and I said oh you're getting ready for lockdown and she said yes I am and I, and I said do you think we're going to be in this for a long time And she goes you know what love I do because for for a minute I it, I thought this was going to remind me of back in the war because Belfast was heavily bombed in World War II was making all the ships and the planes for the British army and and she goes but it's, it's not because back then we all tried to see how can we help whereas look around today everybody's just trying to say what can I get away with and it was the realization of that moment and that everybody is communicating from a perspective of preemptive defense that there's no conversation here it's we're all screaming into the wind and all so busy trying to be understood that we forget to try and understand
2: and so at that juncture you had these thoughts going through your head now you're at a
1: author and illustrator is that is that what we're calling illustrator yes uh, you don't love that I, word I, so yeah but illustrator artist storyteller do you know if it's a, a, a little aside I uh, had a sculpture at COP26 which was the uh, summit and uh, the in Glasgow was 26 and was heavy on climate And I had this sculpture in the blue zone which is where all the world leaders and the business leaders go and the didn't have a box to check for artists when I was registering. So the young Senegalese woman who, who uh, spoke 12 languages, by the way, um, who registered me, she says, ah, no box for artists. So I just put you down as an observer and a translator. I was like, that's kind of perfect. Yeah. So I call myself an observer and a translator okay. these days. You know, I don't you know, like yes, I draw pictures. There's, there's a, an accessibility about the pictures. But, you know, I know people who are better at drawing pictures than, than, than me. Uh, Owen Colfer is this author, and we did a book together, and his son once asked me, Oliver, why are your drawings so popular? And it took me a minute to realize <laughs> that was not a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: okay, well, let's talk to you as observer and translator, or artist and author, however you want to put it. Um, so you helped the lady with the bags across the street? Yep. Okay. Yeah. And then you had to make a decision. You could have written another kid's book. With, with similar themes, I think, about <clears throat> this exact book. Yeah. So for you, when did you say no? I, and you don't call this an adult book. You call it an all-ages book. An so all-ages book. It's a
1: picture book. I've never said I write children's books. I've always said I write picture books. Because I do... You know, the uh, the fate of Fausto is uh, equally valid a narrative for, for adults as it is for kids, you know, about greed and arrogance. And um, I knew this was going to be a book. And... Honestly, one of the reasons that I thought this is not going to be a kid's book because you know there's some fairly heavy themes in here about society. Uh, and then I tried reading it to my kids, they could not have cared less. <laughs> but I'm now realizing that that's maybe a comment on just their idea of me as a father <laughs> rather than that it's not for kids. So, because uh, th- you know there's, there's plenty of kids who have been getting it and understanding it and having conversations, and plenty of parents realizing this is actually a, 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 a nice platform to begin having some of these conversations. The idea of raising uh children it was like you don't really raise children you raise future adults and they these things have to be introduced at some point if we're going to be contributing positively to society as future adults
2: so when i open this book i'll show you in a second i hopefully we can see at the back if someone, you know, came up to me to dinner party or something yeah. and asked me this question, I would be like, where is someone else to talk to? Cause this is a big question yeah. to start with. So it <laughs> says, uh, where did we begin? I don't know how well everyone can see this. You'll see in your own copy of your book, but I'm curious about that, that, what seems like a very sort of almost benign, simple question yet very complex yeah. and deep. That yeah. was, these four words were delivered. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We are storytelling creatures. And stories are probably one of the, the, the most important things that humans have created. All individuals are a collection of stories. They're the stories that we're told, which is our history, our context, You know, what our ancestors experienced, where we're from. There's the stories that are told about us, that's our reputation. And then there's the stories that we tell, The the stories we tell to other people, kind of a projection of our personality. But the most important story of all in there is the story that we tell ourselves. What is it that fuels us forward into an unknown future? And we have governed ourselves by stories all these years. Like the first stories that try to make sense out of chaos were constellations, you know, looking up at these what you know the nails hanging the black curtain up at night and what are they what do they mean and then the lines between them were the first illustrations of those stories we are story driven species and so what are the stories that we've been told why does it feel that why does everybody feel so lost right now where have we come from what have the stories we've been telling ourselves as a context for what's happened that it feels so disjointed and turbulent so it seemed like a reasonable place to begin.
2: And that, so you were talking about the constellations there. Is that why the art, where the art's the sky, couple of planets, there's Earth and there's yep. other planets and stars yep. and there's, was that it's, what sort of
1: it's, That's very, that's very, very deliberate. But you know what, even how to catch a star is interested in the night sky. Way back home, you've got the, uh, this small boy who flew a plane up and he's on the moon looking back at Earth. I've become very, very fascinated with the uh, overview effect, which is a phenomenon that happens to the human mind when it ventures far enough away from the surface of our planet to understand that this is a ball floating in space. Uh, And whenever I was recognizing the language that these astronauts were using, talking about looking at Earth from as far as the moon, that was the same way that I was talking about Northern Ireland from... The distance of New York, because in New York, a lot of people didn't really know or care about our conflict. Like a lot of people didn't know the difference between Great Britain, the United Kingdom and the British Isles. Does anybody want to have a go, by the way, at (laughs) doing those? So two of them are geographical terms. So the big island is Great Britain with England, Scotland, Wales. The United Kingdom is a political term because it's the big island and half, or a quarter rather, of the small island, so that's the United Kingdom of Great Britain, and Northern Ireland. And then both islands are the British Isles. Although I found out that people in the Republic of Ireland, they were like, we don't call it the British Isles. I was like, well, what do you call it then? And they say, these islands. (laughs) I was like, well, what if you're somewhere else? Those islands. (laughs) So you know, d- d- speaking about Northern Ireland from that distance, and it just seemed like a tragic, poignant waste of time and energy that we're killing each other to be either British or Irish, and nobody cares. And it was similar to the way that astronauts spoke about looking at Earth from the moon. And then a lot of perspective and uh, spa- like cos- cosmological perspective started to, to present itself in my work. And in, in using that as, a, as a, uh, a, a device, I suppose, you could really talk about just how important stories are, for example. So whenever the Apollo 8 mission went up and went around the moon to look for a landing spot for a, a Apollo 11, they had no, they, they, it didn't occur to them to look back. Their, their focus was on the moon and, and going out that way. And it's only when they came around and then they could see Earth. And they're like, wow, look at that. That's beautiful. They took a photograph which became known as the Earthrise photograph, which started the Green Movement in 1969. But they could not work out what part of the Earth they were looking at. They could see a giant landmass, but it took them longer than they care to admit to recognize what that was. And what they were looking at was the entire bottom half of Africa. They didn't recognize it because it was sideways. Mm. And we are not used to looking at the map (laughs) sideways. And then it becomes very clear, it's like, oh yeah, we're a ball floating in space. There is no up, there is no down. It's completely arbitrary that North is at the top of a map. That's a concept, That's a construct, that's a story we told ourselves to make sense. Yeah, I always
2: say um, we think we're the center of the universe when we look at maps because we're always central, the center of it where you live. So when I lived in the Middle East, yeah. well, North America was far left of that when I look yeah. at a map here. It's, yeah, it's a and I,
1: I find it really interesting when I moved to the States and I found some, some old school maps that divided Russia right down the middle so the USA <laughs> could be in the middle and you know European maps for centuries have made Greenland about nine times bigger than it really is to push Europe down more in towards the middle like they're, they're highly misleading there's only one accurate map actually that's on a piece of paper and it's called the Peter's projection and you look at it and you're like ooh wow <laughs> and Africa is way bigger than it's, it's often denoted in maps
2: So you decide okay I'm going to write this all ages book I have this concept I have this idea and then you've got to kind of figure out what your approach is because you
1: yeah, not it could done have. I, I, I might have made this into a film. I might have made it as a series of paintings. I didn't know the reason why I ended up with a book. I think is because a book is accessible in a way that other mediums just aren't. And it, uh, even if it was an art exhibition, say it was a collection of paintings, that would be together for a short period of time and then never again. Whereas the book stands the test of time. It sticks around. It doesn't need a plug. It can be handed down it it permeates and it stays in culture in a different way so if i want to get this some of these topics of conversation out there i figured a book is about the best way to do that
2: and so as you start writing what is your process do you do art and and writing at the same time or how do you do it I,
1: i often do both uh the words and pictures at the same time a kid asked me that once it was like do you you write or draw first and I was like I do them both at the same time and they went like this wow (laughs) (laughs) not quite like that Um, but it's a it's a feeling thing you know whenever you whenever you remember something do you remember that in words or do you remember that in pictures it's neither it's sort of a feeling and then you've got everything I try to do, I try to convey what I'm saying and feeling in a way that has as little distortion as possible. So it's a, it's a combination of how do I say this and show this? And I've always felt that showing is more powerful than saying. But it, with the combination of both things, you're setting out the ingredients so that the, whoever is reading it or viewing it can put those together in their own mind. And that's a much more powerful emotional response when anybody out there then becomes a co-creator of this because they I'm not spelling something out but it's when it comes together in their mind that's the completion of it
2: and so when you're writing for young kids I would imagine or non-adults I will say um, it might be easier to picture your reader in other words I don't know if you write for one person if that's I the do approach, write for one person yeah? when you're writing for everyone mm-hmm. there isn't that singular, as, as much of a singularity no so when you were thinking like of the words because this book it's really beautiful
1: and complex and yet its beauty lies in simplicity as well. With the stories, I tend to n- just not really show them to people. I, I intuitively know. But with the, the, the intention of this book was to convey complicated feelings in a simple way, I keep testing them on people, and I keep reading and showing. And if there's something that is not landing the way that I feel it needs to land, then I go back and finesse it. Because I want to boil things down to such simplicity that they cannot be disagreed with. Because I have... An intuitive feeling that all people, even on various different political divides and religious divides, are much more similar than we actually give ourselves credit for. And so how do I get to that deep emotional point before there's misinterpretation?
2: So this book, um, I've seen it described as a book about the climate crisis, about greed. About How how would you describe what this book is about? I think it's a book
1: about the power of storytelling and the importance of community. Is it a book about climate? Sure, but so stuck so is the day the crowns quit. The the thinking that climate is this separate issue that's over here is dangerous to us because everything is climate related. We need a climate for anything to happen in, and the idea that it's an isolated problem, you know, even the way with countries go in to negotiate their own climate terms and the way they deal with things, it's like. Remember, there was non-smoking sections in airplanes. It's a bit like that, <laughs> you know, like cuz germs and weather do not need passports. So to treat these things as if they did is is laughably futile. And whenever you know that overview effect again, it becomes very obvious that this is one giant single super system. It needs to be treated with a cohesive united front for anything to take hold. The Frank White is one of the NASA engineers that, that put some of those early spaceships up but he said we're going to have to start acting as one species with one destiny we are not going to survive if we don't start doing that and so what
2: role do you see
1: art playing in the climate crisis I think art is a massively important role because if, you know, it's a, right up until this point it's been thought of as a science issue uh, anybody here a teacher or an education okay so very important work that is preparing future contributing members of society, there's been a lot of talk worldwide about STEM education, science, technology, engineering, maths. And it's it's only recently that somebody thought to put an A in there for art. And I've been going to all of these uh, science conferences and working with scientists, and I've managed to convince them all that the A is the most important letter in there, because science is how we do something, but art is why we do it. So it's the stories that drive us forward, the science figures are what to do with that. So that is the job of science, uh, of art. So art is not, you know, it's not decoration, it's not making something look pretty, it's not entertainment. And uh, in, in a visual talk that I've been doing, i prepared this slide and it's like, art and storytelling are not the icing on the cake. They're not even the cake, they are the table upon which the cake sits. The job of art and storytelling is to change the ground under your feet so you see the sky differently and you see your role in the world differently.
2: So when you're thinking about these big issues, this summer, just by way of example, and I don't have to tell any of you, um, the hottest summer on record since we've started keeping records, from Greece to Hawaii to Canada, to to New York, there were floods. Ireland. Yeah, to Ireland. Where do you find the hope? Because so many people, and I I would say previous to this summer, but so many people anecdotally had told me like, I've never felt so hopeless.
1: Yep. Uh, Because we're all disconnected because we are in this age of liberalism and individualism Where we're all told that we are you know the most important person in the world and that's a that's a lovely way to think But it disconnects us from our community. So the massiveness of this problem compared to you as an individual seems overwhelming so where is my hope there because having being at a bunch of the, these these conferences, speaking at the TED uh, Climate Countdown, b- running in the, the the rooms at like UN Climate Week, for all of these problems that we face, there are solutions. We are just not getting behind the same ones, and that's ego comes into it. And even in the climate arena, people are prioritizing being right over being better. So a way to rephrase this or reframe it and shift the perspective on it is that we don't have a climate problem. The climate is not broken, the world is not broken. It's doing exactly what it should with the input it's receiving. We have a people problem in that we are too busy arguing over what to play on the radio to notice the smoke coming out of the engine. So it seems infinitely easier to settle an argument than to change the weather, and we can do that. There are solutions, we just have to start getting behind the CM ones and explaining to people and bringing people in and along the journey that they have a part to play in this. So when I, when I spoke at uh, COP26 and I did that sculpture, people were saying there was five groups of people present. And I realized there wasn't, there was six. So the, the, those groups were world leaders, business leaders, the delegates trying to actually make the change, the media. Then outside, there was the angry youth protesting, which I probably would have been in had, it, had I not been inside the Blue Zone. But then from inside this, the, the, the inside passage, I was like, realized that that's not actually helping. These are the people trying to fix the problem, and yelling at them is, is, is discouraging, rather than, you know, if it was a half-time talk, it should have been encouraging rather than you're doing it wrong. And I have noticed from watching my wife, the way she mothers our children, that you'll never get anybody to change their mind by telling them that they're wrong. But yet, that's what we keep doing. The last group of people present at COP26, so of all the people that cared about climate change were in that one city, the last group of people was represented by the taxi drivers. 80% of that city did not care. And when you talk to them, they're like, what do you think's happening in here? I don't know, it's a waste of money. Why? They have not been included in the story of what is happening and their role in it. So the future of storytelling in the climate arena needs to not be about these internal debates between the, uh, the, the, the protests and the, the business leaders, it is a matter of bringing the 80% of people who don't feel that they've got an entry point in to bring them along. How do we do that? By including them, by rephrasing how it works. Uh, an example I was using is in 2016, the election in the USA, coal mining became like the poster child of the, the, the forgotten people of America. And you know, logically, as, as a liberal, it was like, well, coal's bad. It's destroying our planet. And from the other perspective, it was like, don't tell me what to do. Uh, don't tell me I'm not important. If we had gone about that very differently, instead of saying, you're irrelevant, coal is bad, we had said, thank you. That mission is now complete. We need you for a new job. We have a new mission. And brought those people with us, it would have been entirely different. You said this
2: book is, um a book of observations. There is no nice, tiny bow at the end. There isn't a No,
1: there's confusion. not. And you know, it's, I was quite careful to not tell anybody what to say or think or do. It's like, these are the things that I notice. I am laying them out for you. You can do with them what you want. But I happen to be optimistic. I do think that while the world does feel very scary, a lot of the issues outside of the climate um, seem to be getting worse. I think it's easy to forget in a time of short attention spans that things are getting better. You know, the, we just now actually see all of the problems everywhere at the same time. Was even go back to 50 years ago where the, there was all sorts of inequality that was generally ignored. A hundred years ago was way worse. You know, take what I do, kids books didn't really exist a century ago. Why? Because children didn't live predictably long enough to weren't getting their own books. Hmm we forget how far we have come.
2: So when you're kid, because my eldest, who's 13, for the first time, and I know other kids have asked their parents this, asked me a couple, couple of months ago now, and it, I found it quite disheartening um, when she asked it, because it said sometimes how kids think about the world, that are full, they're full of joy and optimism mm-hmm. and all these things, and then she came crashing in and said, why is the world so messed up? Why are we so terrible to I, each other? I, I,
1: why the world is so messed up is because it is... We, I think we're using the wrong measuring stick for, for, for success of what we want. You know, It's all about growth, right? It's all in financial terms, it's all about growing and more and having more and faster, but to what end? If you look at uh, uncharted growth in biological terms, that's also called cancer. So what do we want any of this stuff for? Uh, the, the story is accelerating beyond any reasonable person can keep up with it. It's, everything is disconnected. And we've, I think, we've lost a sense of our context and our and our purpose, and and the hope then goes with that because it feels absolutely insurmountable. But there is change afoot, and you can sense it everywhere you look. You know, we're, we think about when we were kids, the things that we valued were important, and now I look at the kids in the room today and the things that they value and feel important. You, that's that's a comparison enough to realise that. Things are getting better. There is a mindset, there's a zeitgeist shift about returning to these things that we actually do want, which is safety, dignity, community, and purpose.
2: Thank you. We so appreciate you. Thank you for coming Thank to you. Toronto. Thank Thanks you. for the book. Pro- that was my onstage conversation with author and illustrator Oliver Jeffers. His new book for all ages is called Begin Again. Eating is not always about sustenance or pleasure. Sometimes it's a political act, especially these days when we're surrounded by labels like organic, sustainable and vegan friendly. With all of that, there's a growing awareness of how the food we eat gets to our table. But it wasn't always that way. Marion Nestle helped change how so many of us think about the way we eat. She's credited with helping invent the field of food studies. And her 2002 book, Food Politics, opened the foodie floodgates, making future bestsellers like Eric Schlosser's Fast Food Nation and Michael Pollan's The Omnivore's Dilemma Possible. Marion recently shared her story in a memoir called Slow Cooked: An Unexpected Life in Food Politics. I spoke with Marion Nestle all about it in November of last year. I want to go back to your childhood. You grew up in New York and L.A., but you write about this rural setting, a place called Higley Hill in Vermont, which I I think I can best describe as a farm-slash-summer camp that you spent time at. And I'm wondering how foundational was Higley Hill in your time there and how you felt about food? How, what impact did it have?
4: Well, it was extraordinarily influential. Um, for one thing, it was the one place in my childhood where I just felt happy and free. Um, I loved being outdoors. The people who ran the camp had lived in China for a very long time. And uh, the woman who ran re- who, ran and cooked Chinese food, uh, walked vegetables, and she really was a fabulous cook. And it was the first time that I'd been exposed to fresh food. This was post-World War II America. There wasn't much in the way of fresh vegetables being shipped across country at that time. And the camp had a very large kitchen garden. And if you were good, it was your turn to go and pick vegetables Mm -hmm. for the garden. And, you know, it was one for me and one for the pot kind of thing. I just loved picking vegetables. And then she would cook them into something that was absolutely delicious. And the grounds also had many kinds of berries growing wild all over the place. And we were sent off in the morning to pick berries and she would put them in pancakes. I mean, I just never eaten anything. So absolutely delicious. And I still feel that way about yeah. fresh vegetables and fruits
2: and berries. So this was your, um, if I can describe it as your early love affair with food, um, you had never planned on a career in food and nutrition. Instead, you chose to study biology at university. You became a scientist. And, you know, you talk about, look, when I was a kid, we didn't have much fresh food. The time you were in university, Marion, there weren't a lot of girls and, and women embarking on, quote, serious scientific careers. You faced many hurdles. And I'm wondering if you can give me a sense of what it was like being a woman in science at that time.
4: Well, what was happening was normal, so I didn't experience it as unjust, unfair, or um, something that should be fought against. It was just the way the world was. And when I started my graduate career, my first interview with the graduate advisor was, well, we're going to give you a fellowship this year because no men applied. But next year when men apply, you'll probably have to give it up. And that was just kind of the way it was. I mean, women were expected to get married and have children. And believe me, I did that. I was trying very hard to conform. Uh, And there were, you know, the example that I use is that my three closest friends in high school had as their lifetime ambition to marry a doctor, a professor, and a rabbi, respectively. (laughs) And they did. And and as far as I know, they're still married to them. But the... uh, You know, I didn't even have that ambition because I wasn't very socially adept and didn't think I had any control over that either. Um, But the options for women were very, very limited. Um, It was understood that if you did work, you were going to support your husband's career. Um, And when I went back to my 25th high school reunion, I was one of only two women in my class who had careers, let alone jobs, Hmm. Um, and the women who did work were helping their husbands. Uh, so, I mean, that was just how it was. Yeah.
2: I mean, you not only had a career, you also went on to have children. And I, I, I want you to tell me this story. Tell our audience, our listeners, this story. Something happens one morning when your kids had an extra long swimming lesson. It was a Saturday morning. And you said, hey, I got time to go to the lab. I can go get some work done. What happens when you get to the lab, Marion?
4: No, yes. Uh, I call it the swimming pool of epiphany. <laughs> it was it was the moment at which I knew that a scientific career would be impossible for me uh, because I walked into my lab on a Saturday morning expecting nobody to be there and expecting to be able to, you know, get a little work in. And everybody was there. And I mean, everybody, the lab director, the his wife, the uh Lab technicians, all the graduate students, all the other postdoctoral fellows, everybody was in the lab. I hadn't even known that people in my lab were there on Saturday morning. And even if I wanted to be there, there was no way in the world I could have done it because I had nobody to take care of my kids. Um, My husband had a lab job of his own, and he was working on his career and his career, we both agreed, was much more important than mine. Um, So that was a turning point. I I walked out of there that day thinking, no wonder everybody treats me. As if I'm not getting any work done. And no wonder I'm not getting any work done. Mm. And I know that there, you know, I now know that there were women of that era who were able to manage careers and family. But I was not one of them. I just couldn't do it. Um, and that was it. I started looking for teaching jobs.
2: And and then you found one. And uh, you were assigned to teach a nutrition class. Well, yes,
4: that that was life-changing, too. Um, I was at Brandeis University as an instructor in the biology department, and it had an unusual set of rules about faculty practice, which was that you could only teach the same course three times in a row so you didn't get stale. Um, and you had to teach whatever was needed. And I was my three years teaching cell and molecular biology were up. And I was um, told it was time to teach a human biology course. Would I like physiology or nutrition? I picked nutrition. I thought it would be more fun. And was it ever? I've never
2: looked back. Yeah, you said it was like falling in love when you started this work. So what did you love about it? everything. Mm -hmm. Um, It connected
4: to everything that I was interested in besides science. It was connected to history and culture and anthropology and sociology and politics. Yeah.
2: You have this great line in your book, Marion. You write, I'm hard-pressed to think of a problem in society that cannot be understood more deeply by examining the role of food. So expand on that for me. Well,
4: if you want to, it's hard for people to understand climate change. It's not hard for people to understand that raising animals for food creates greenhouse gases because they burp methane. People get that right away. Um, it's very difficult to talk about immigration policy, but if you talk about what farm labor is about and who works in meatpacking plants, people get it right away. There's something about food that is concrete. It's extraordinarily intimate because it's something that you put inside your body. Um, and people relate to it in ways that they find very difficult to relate to other things in, the, in quite the same way. So this makes it immediate, it rouses passions mm. in people. I, I like all that. I like the way food and nutrition attach to people's um, concerns about religion, culture, family, um, society. I, I just find all of that really interesting. And you can, I, I'll give you the easiest example. Ten years ago, I couldn't mention the word capitalism in class without getting students really upset and uncomfortable and twitching in their seats. And now, if I'm talking about the kinds of things that I talk about in food politics, everybody in the audience jumps up and says, aren't you really talking about (laughs) late-stage capitalism? Well, yes, I am. Um, And I I think you can do that through food in a way that just doesn't feel as threatening.
2: If you're just tuning in, perhaps while eating a scrumptious healthy breakfast or perhaps not. I'm Pia Chattapadai, and I'm speaking with the author and professor Mary Nessel about her new memoir. It is called Slow Cooked, An Unexpected Life in Food Politics. Okay, so Mary, let's um, talk about your time as a nutrition policy advisor for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services in, in D.C. and in Washington. That's where you ended up eventually working. And I, I I know that politics and food intersected for you before that, but this is perhaps, correct me if I'm wrong, where they really come together for you. What did that experience reveal to you about how food and politics intersect?
4: Well, I tell the story in my book, Food Politics, and I repeat it in the memoir, that on my first day on the job, I was told that no matter what the research showed, The Surgeon General's report on nutrition and health, which is what I was in Washington to edit, would never say eat less of any American food commodity. It would never say eat less meat. It would never say drink less soda. It would never say eat fewer snack foods. It would never in any way suggest eating less of American food products, because if it did, the Department of Agriculture, which defends commodity agriculture, would complain to Congress, and Congress would prevent the report from ever coming out. And. That's exactly what happened. As a result, the report said eat less. I mean, there's a reason why dietary guidelines talk about sugar, salt and saturated fat and not soft drinks, meat and Hmm. snack foods. There's a reason for that, because the industry pushback on talking about specific food products is just too great. And no government agency is willing to stand up to that. Uh, so that was what I learned that there were just constant political maneuvering. I was protected from a great deal of it because I was a lowly staff person in that office. Uh, but I could certainly see that every single word of that report was going to be scrutinized by any food company making a product likely to be affected by the recommendations of the report. Mm-hmm. That was in the late 1980s, and that situation exists for dietary guidelines up until the present.
2: And then there was another, if I can put it this way, aha moment for you. This is when you're at a conference listening to someone talk about the tobacco industry. What did that illuminate for you?
4: It was a conference on behavioral causes of cancer, and by behavior— Uh, The conference defined that as cigarette smoking and diet. And there was one presentation on cigarette marketing to children that was slide after slide after slide of Joe Camel and other uh, kid-friendly symbols of cigarette smoking. And I was just stunned by these presentations because... I knew that cigarette companies marketed, and I knew that cigarette companies marketed to children, but I had never paid any attention to it. Cigarette marketing was so much a part of the normal landscape of that era that it was just kind of there and you didn't pay attention to it. And as I learned later, you're not supposed to pay attention to marketing. If the marketing is done well, it's just kind of subliminal and you take it all in subliminally and don't even see it. And I walked out of that meeting thinking, we should be doing this for Coca-Cola. And I started paying attention to how food companies marketed particularly how they marketed to children. And if I traveled, I'd take photographs. I have a terrific collection of photographs of Coke and Pepsi advertising all over the world. Um, and I started writing about marketing, um, how food companies were trying to get their products sold and increasingly understood that food companies needed to be looked at in the same way that we looked at cigarette companies, not as you know, just normal products or, or companies that were making products that we liked, but that as businesses that had stockholders to please, and the way I like to put it is that food companies are not social service agencies and they're not public health agencies. They're businesses. Hmm. Their job is to make money for their stockholders. And once you understand that that's not only their job, but it is their sole focus, then you understand a lot of industry behavior. A lot of things become very clear. And one of them is that if you're trying to push back against food industry marketing, you're you're fighting everything that they stand for. No wonder it's so hard to do.
2: Well, let's talk about because uh, you had over your time big battles with big food, the, the food companies over over the years um, during your time working in government and When you think about it, and Nessel, what stands out for you? And I know there were many, but what stands out for you as a victory for the public interest that perhaps you're most proud of? I I think just the greater
4: understanding among the public of the corporate nature of food companies, that food companies are not benevolent. Um, That they need to be looked at the way you would look at any other product manufacturer. Um, The idea that you can talk about capitalism in a lecture on food and not shock people. I I think that's an enormous change. Uh, Certainly a change from when I started talking about these issues when some of these things were very, very difficult concepts to get across. And now everybody gets them right away.
2: And so given what you just said, uh, Marion, where we sort of are today, you know, after a lifetime of studying and advocating for better food and better food policy, what do you see 2022 November as the most pressing issue that needs our attention now? Can you silo one off?
4: Well, there are three fair. Um, And that's uh, people not having enough food, people having so much food that they gain weight and develop diet-related chronic diseases um, and climate change. And our food system is intimately connected to all three of those. And most people who are looking at this say that we ought to be working toward consuming diets that address all three of those problems at once and the diets that do that are diets in industrialized countries that contain less meat and more vegetables a largely but not exclusively plant-based diet uh, would help with with all three Um, and in the United States where You know, I'm much more familiar with policies than I am with Canadian policies. Um, I think we need to link agricultural policy to public health in a much more direct way. Right now, our agricultural policy is is designed to support commodity agriculture. And public health is, you know, we don't even we don't even push the growing of food for people in our agricultural policy. Instead, we support feed for animals and fuel for automobiles.
2: That needs to change. I, You know, I think um, through the COVID pandemic, um, it might have opened a lot of people's eyes or, or more people's eyes to our so-called food system. You know, between people were cooking more at home, seeing how our how supply chains work or don't, the the people who work in farming and factories and and other industry where food is made or served. What are the lessons you think people should take away from these past few years about where and how we get our food? Well,
4: the more we understand about where our food comes from, the better off we are. Um, And that is why I think that linking agriculture to health policy is something that governments ought to be doing as quickly as possible. For one thing, we need to produce food more. Uh, The buzzword these days is regeneratively, meaning putting back into soil what gets taken out. Um, Because if we don't do that, we're not going to be able to grow food anyway anyway. Um, we need to develop crops that work better uh, under whatever the current climate conditions are. I mean we're facing a lot of very serious crises over the amount of people you know I think the number of people in the world has just hit eight billion. Um, and it's still growing. And we've got the climate change to deal with. And at the same time, we have enormous numbers of people who don't have enough money to buy food. Or, and if they do buy food, they don't have enough money to buy healthier food. We have to do something about that. And and make sure that everybody has enough healthy food. To eat. I, I mean, there are plenty of problems to work on. Um, was, uh, food was once described to me as a full employment act. There's no la- <laughs> there's no lack of issues, and there are endless things to work on. And the more people working on them, the better, as far as I'm concerned.
2: You know, you've had such a storied life at a storied career. You went on to write so many books, perhaps the most influential being food politics. But it's taken you some time, Mary Nestle, to get to your memoir. <laughs> in fact, you called it slow cooked because um, some of your biggest moments in your career came after you were well into your 60s. And I have to say, you know, it's inspirational to read about your career and the way you've persisted. Basically, you invented your own field of studied when the original and you started out became close to you, and you accomplished so many things later in life, in your 60s, your 70s, your 80s. And so I'm wondering, what what's your advice for people listening who are slow cookers, people like you. Have fun. <laughs> you got, <laughs> you
4: got plenty of time left. I mean, who would ever think that this late stage in my career would be the most fun of anything? I mean, I'm just having a wonderful time and still able to write, and I've been so gratified by the response to this memoir. It's the first really personal book that I've written. Um, I wrote it specifically to answer the questions that I get asked all the time about how did i do it and how can i do it i mean students ask me all the time i want to do what you do how do i do that and well i i think they could take some shortcuts (laughs) uh, they don't really have to take this amount of time (laughs)
2: You said it was very interesting to, to write it, and I will just say it was very interesting and inspirational to read it. So thank you for it and for making time for us today.
4: My pleasure.
2: That was my conversation with Marion Nestle from November 2022. Her memoir is called Slow Cooked, and Unexpected Life in Food Politics. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and you're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. So Marion may have you thinking differently about how you eat, But lunch is around the corner, my friends, so how about what to eat? If I can make a suggestion, whether they're steamed, fried, or boiled, eaten with a fork, chopsticks, or by hand, I'm going to argue that dumplings are not only delicious, they're delicious no matter the shape or form. After all, every continent and culinary tradition has its own version, and I'm guessing many families do as well. In the essay collection, What We Talk About, When we talk about dumplings, several Canadian writers unwrap their own dumpling histories, heritage, discoveries, and family secrets. And as it turns out, the stuff of dumpling lore is much more than just flour, fat, and filling.
5: If you eat dumplings, you can't be in a bad mood. And if you're in a bad mood, they're going to put you in a good mood. Hi, my name is Amy Rosen. I'm the author of the cookbook Kosher Style, and I wrote about matzo balls in this anthology. When I think of dumplings... What I think about is nostalgia. You're walking down the street, maybe an aroma hits you and stops you in your tracks. They pull at the old heartstrings and they make you smile. My Bubby Fran was the best cook in the family. And so you would go to her house for Shabbat dinner and you could smell it down the hall of the condo. Just like it would wrap you up like one of her little crochet duvets. The genre of dumpling that matzo balls belong to and also you have in the South, chicken and dumplings and, you know, even drop biscuits, I think, could maybe even be considered a dumpling. And they are used to bulk up ingredients to make a whole meal. So this variety of dumpling serves the purpose of stretching a dollar and making sure that often very large families are well fed.
6: Have you ever made a dumpling? It's really hard. Oh my gosh, it's so hard. Closing it is like, can I, am I a human? Like, can I do this? My name is Cristina Gonzalez, I'm a freelance writer, and I wrote about xopao. So xopao is made out of traditional sort of uh, bun, like a bauzi. And inside the filling is carne asada, which is usually a pork braised dish that originates from Mexico, except the Filipino version is braised rather than grilled. And we inherited this from the Spanish and the Mexicans. Filipino food is only starting to become mainstream and because of our colonial history it's really difficult to dissect what Filipino food is. It's sort of a melting pot of culture and a mix of Spanish, American and Chinese food as well as sort of our, our food from indigenous people which is like the Indo-Malay people. This dumpling, Chopao, Filipino xopao, encapsulates our history in and of itself. Spain ceded the Philippines, the islands of the Philippines, to the Americans. American industrialization came in, and that's the reason we have xopao imports across the world. The reason I wanted to make it when I wrote this essay was because I'd never actually tried one that was handmade. When I finally got the dough right and I was able to close the shop bow and put it in the steamer and see it come to life it was like something I'd never experienced before it was illuminating
7: it's just got to be really hot (laughs) like if my mouth is burning in terms of the spice and the, the heat that to me I'm having a good patty my name is Cheryl Thompson I'm an assistant professor in performance at the creative school at Toronto Metropolitan University I wrote about the 1985 Jamaican patty controversy. So patties deserve to be in this book because like dumplings, they're a pastry essentially encased in some kind of meat or veggie. The actual mechanics of what a patty is It's very similar to what a dumpling is. It's a street food that's also part of a diasporic culture. So you think about the dumplings in North America, they're really coming from quote-unquote ethnic communities that come from somewhere else. They were brought into this part of the world, just like the patty was brought into this part of the world from somewhere else. So the Patty Wars. In 1985, the Canadian government had an issue with the term patty they felt as if because they had already identified the beef patty as being a particular type of item, they basically said that the patty could only contain meat, salt seasonings, and other things. It couldn't have fillers in it. So how they've classified beef patty, it was without any kind of breadcrumbs or any kind of filling. So when they found that there were basically Jamaicans selling what they were calling beef patty, they wanted to shut a particular store owner down. The meat inspection um, officer came in and said, we're gonna find you $5,000 if you don't change the name of beef patty because it goes against our regulations. It turned into this whole brouhaha with even the Jamaican government (laughs) getting involved And then finally, you know, an agreement was essentially reached that they would refer to it as Jamaican beef patty.
0: We had this ongoing debate about whether there should be a precise definition of dumpling. The debate is more delicious than the actual definition. My name is John Lawrence. I'm a freelance journalist and I'm also the editor of the anthology. I think the through line is that as a food as a type of food as a family of foods dumplings are remarkably enduring and they really they've migrated around the world in ways that food historians have tracked you know evidence of them has been found in archaeological digs a lot of the stories that are in the book talk about the sort of intergenerational element of dumplings this dish has this emotional content you know in my family you know every fall we do this plum dumpling uh, dinner Plum dumplings, which in Hungarian is called Silvash kombo, it's, it's very delicious, it's very heavy, it's very rich. They're basically prune plums that are wrapped in a potato dough, breaded, and then you eat them with sugar and a little bit of lemon rind. Twelve years ago, my mother had a stroke and she's okay, but she couldn't cook anymore. And so my sister and I had to take over making the plum dumplings. And it took several years for us to figure out how to do it properly. There was a lot of trial and error, a lot of error. So that learning process, that intergenerational learning is um, also something that comes up over and over again in these stories. The paradox in in terms of dumplings is that the reason that there's so many varieties and species of dumplings is because That's exactly what happened over time, right? You know, they moved from place to place, local people sort of adapted them, and we continue to adapt them.
2: Those were just some of the Canadian brains behind the book of essays, what we talk about when we talk about dumplings. Now, as many can attest, especially at this time of year, getting meals on the table can be time-consuming, expensive, and exhausting. But my next guests are hoping to make that task a little easier, a little cheaper, and a lot more delicious. And when cooking advice comes out of the Ottolenghi test kitchen, people around the globe pull up a seat at the table. Yotam Ottolenghi may well be the name on some of your greasiest, sauciest, and most dog-eared cookbooks. The chef, restaurateur, and author has brought his international palate, born of his Israeli-Italian-German roots, by way of London to the world's taste buds. He recently teamed up with the head of his test kitchen, Noor Murad, for a guide to unlocking that Ottolenghi flavor by using up scraps in your fridge and your freezer and peering into the potential of your pantry to make all our meals a little more doable. The book is called Ottolenghi Test Kitchen, Shelf Love. I spoke with Yotam and Noor back in November of 2021, a time when the pandemic was shaping many of our eating habits, but their advice endures. Here's our conversation. Shelf love reads like a love letter to home cooking, which many of us, uh, whether we wanted to or not, have spent a ton of time doing during the pandemic. How has each of your relationships with cooking changed over this past year and a half plus?
8: So essentially, um, the pandemic was a shock to the system for me, for Noor, for everyone else around us, for our business. In so many ways, uh, it made us look differently at food, at the way we cook and the recipes we publish. In some ways, the that early 2020 moment where we were running out of, um, you know, of stocks in supermarkets, and we couldn't go out shopping because of various lockdowns, have really made a mark on the way we cook and the way we think about food. And uh, we all resorted to using our pantries much more and, and ingredients that were at hand. And also the notion that <clears throat> you can't rely on certain ingredients being always available, Uh, so you need to be flexible, and you need to to be much more open-minded when you cook. Um, All those things have really affected the way I cook, we cook, and and that's the kind of message we're trying to convey through the pages of of this book.
9: We were all kind of dispersed around the world, I was in Bahrain at at the time, and um... It was about cooking with what was accessible and what was in our cupboards and using up what we had and being a lot more resourceful and I think a lot more intuitive as well. Um, I think in a time where, you know, there wasn't a lot we couldn't control, the one place that we could or the one place that we felt we had could find some comfort was in the kitchen. Um, and I think just kind of going through the shelves, reaching for what's in the fridge and combining it um it, it kind of it became quite natural um, to a lot of people and to, to us as well and um, and that's kind of how we've adapted our recipes um, in ways that you can kind of mix and match and substitute and make swaps um, where, where needed
2: and, and to that point noor one of the goals of your book is to explain the rules of recipes but then teach us how to bend or even break them all together why is it important to break the rules
9: I think be, for a number of reasons. I think the first one is, you know, this book, if if you've seen it, it looks like a notebook. It feels like a notebook. Um, and we encourage people on every single page to make a recipe your own. Um, and I think that is such an important thing because... It's it's resourceful. It's um, it's using up what you have rather than going out and um, spending more money and going to the shops. Um, and also it gives you this sense of ownership over the recipe. You feel like, oh, I changed this and, and you kind of feel very proud about it. And it's almost like a way for us to kind of include people who are reading this book and kind of include them in the test kitchen to kind of get that that feel um, from from what we do.
2: I said at the beginning, and you have both said, look, this is about opening up your pantry and seeing what's inside. The thing about a pantry, though, is that mine may, might look very different from yours. Um, for example, some of the ingredients you feature uh, include coriander seeds, tahini, uh, turmeric, which are the things that I have, have always had on hand and gr- and grew up with. But they may be quite new and different to other people's cupboards and cultures, which could mean... Shopping around before you shop your own pantry. How did you balance, Yotam, the needs of these different audiences when you were putting this book together?
8: The the one point that we I always try to make is that within a recipe book, not every recipe suits everyone. So you know you flick through the book and you find something that you love to cook, and then you check if you've got the ingredients. And this book is not so heavy on new exotic ingredients. We tried to not introduce uh, any additional agree indeed ingredients that haven't been on heavy rotation in our kitchens or in the test kitchen over the years so people who have had the other books will have them but even within the a more limited spectrum like people who have a smaller cupboard we have many recipes that call for a few spices and we mentioned the substitute so we i kind of assume that many pantries will have a basic you know, they will have their olive oils and garlic and often ginger. You will have um, cumin, a, bu- a bunch of simple spices. That already covers quite a lot of ground in our book. Uh, and then there's all the the, the changes that you, we allow you to make. And I'm not saying it in a kind of uh, cheeky way. I'm saying it in an encouraging way. You know, we allow you to make this change. And we want you to make these changes. Um, by omitting a, a, a spice or adding a spice or substituting a spice, I think this one, this, this particular book out of all of them is really works for quite a lot of pantries wherever they happen to be. And if you don't have many of the rest of the ingredients in one particular recipe, then you just move on to the next one and you're probably going to be a bit more lucky.
2: And Noor, these recipes have been described in, in reviews and articles as being Middle Eastern inspired, which isn't surprising given each of your backgrounds. But in the book itself, the dishes are described as you know, convenient, flexible, flavorful. Is there a value in categorizing food by culture or country or region in general?
9: You know, I, I think, you know, every book has a, has an essence depending on the authors behind it. Um, you know, you can't help but put your culture and your upbringing in your food. And I think that really comes across, um, in this book, especially, you know, I grew up in Bahrain and, um, I also grew up in the Middle East. So these, these flavors are very pronounced here, uh, very heavy on lots of herbs, black limes, lots of lemon. And, you know, they are, also described as flexible and approachable, because, you know, I also grew up in a part of two worlds. So my mom is English, um, my dad is Middle Eastern. Um, so I kind of almost fuse those two cultures together um, in my cooking. And I think, you know, describing a book from a certain culture, it's it's inevitable, because you always put a part of yourself in the foods that you create.
2: And your um. Term- There has been this reckoning lately around the cultural origins of food and the people who bring them to popularity, whether it's food writers, some of whom have been criticized for appropriating cuisines of other cultures or TV hosts, quote unquote, like discovering dishes that have been well known to their originators for eons. What do you make of those conversations playing out right now? Because, again, you have leaned, as Noor says, as one does, on what you know, what you grew up with, the kinds of things you cook in your kitchen as well.
8: So I've, I take a, an approach that says that, you know, food has always been something that uh, traveled from one culture to to the other. And there's no such thing really as pure, as pure food, as food of one particular culture, one particular cuisine. It's always very, uh, it's, it flows, it evolves. And the evolution of food is also always uh, has to do with uh, cultural exchange. And I think it's really important to remember that, that there's no purity in food. Um, but I think some of the conversations that we've had, we've had recently, uh, involve the fact, the fact that uh, certain, uh, foods have been, uh, cooked by people who haven't given enough recognition to this, to the origin. So, you know, when you cook something that is out of your culture, and I've cooked foods of various cultures, not just my own. I mean, if you, Flick through the pages of my books from over the years. There'll be um, lots of influences from North Africa to Asia to South Asia to um, to South America. These are not my cultures necessarily, but I, I happily borrow for them from them. But I think the one thing that is really important to remember is to tell the story. And and both in this book and in previous books, much of the preamble is about the the context, is about the story, is about where this comes from and where 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 is it, it is going. Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't really be losing sight of both sides. Both the fact that we really want to allow everyone to cook everything because cooking shouldn't be exclusive, but also the fact that it's really important to tell the story because there's nothing without the stories really. These are really, really crucial to the understanding and to the joy or uh, uh, real joy of food.
2: Noor, I want to ask you about one specific Um, Recipe that you have in this book. People often don't like to change, you know, a gold classic standard. And in North America, macaroni and cheese is one of them. I think the big debate in our country and maybe uh, some other parts is whether it's okay to put ketchup in with your mac and cheese <laughs> <laughs> uh, in your recipe you add feta zaatar, and cumin and noor you have said these flavors are quote what mac and cheese was missing all along what led you down the path of reimagining this
9: well actually a I went to, um, university in, in, in New York, and, um, like many university students, I lived off of, um, ramen and and boxed mac and cheese um but because i went to a culinary school uh, we used to chef it up a little bit (laughs) and uh and so we'd get this boxed mac and cheese and we'd add like chorizo and like all these like interesting flavors um and that's how we would make it like fancy you know um (laughs) And so I've always kind of, I've always loved stovetop mac and cheese, which this version is, um, as opposed to the English, more Europe, English macaroni and cheese, which is baked. Um, but I, I've always loved kind of playing around with mac and cheese. And I, for me, um, as like no longer a university kid, <laughs> um, I, I think that mac and cheese really benefits from something quite fresh and also some a bit of texture um so for me it, it was very natural to gravitate towards the flavors that i know uh so uh the feta adds lots of tang the cumin uh, gives it a bit of spice um and then the zaatar pesto is is If anything, if you're not going to make the mac and cheese, you should just make the pesto because it's something that you could just literally spoon on anything. Mm
5: -hmm.
9: Um, I agree. You you could even just toss boiled pasta with this pesto. It's so fresh and herbaceous. Um, And then the lemon segments. And when you eat it all together, you get something rich and creamy, but then you get something sharp and you get a bit of texture from the onions. And for me, it just—it's just—it's—it's it's both comforting, comforting and familiar, but it also has this little little twist that inevitably is Adalengi, and and that's kind of uh, what we do. Okay, so Yotam,
2: no ketchup. You're not on the
9: side of ketchup. <laughs> no, definitely cheese.
8: not in this context, no, not in the macaroni <laughs> cheese context. But, but I would
2: the mac and cheese that Noor was just describing and and that is in the book, I mean this is a bona fide, autolangified dish. In fact, your book says any dish can be, quote, made unequivocally Autolengi with the right know-how. So, Yotam, your name is now, you know, going to be entered into dictionaries. It's an adjective and verb, and it's used like this all the time. So, I actually want to ask Noor on this. What does autolengi style mean? I actually recently uh,
9: defined this. So, for me... um, (laughs) It's going to be the word of the year. Ottolenghi is... I think that the dictionary definition should be to autolengify is to add a, a flair or a twist to the familiar or, um, and it's also a, a, su- a surprise in the mouth. And I think that is, that's basically what autolengi is because you could see something and, and then you taste it and you're like, Oh, I wasn't expecting that. Um, and I think that in in a nutshell is what, what makes an autolengi, um, how you have to, have to lengthify
8: a dish. Yeah, I, and, and I, I would just like to add, so what Noor suggested is surprise in the uh, mouth. Uh, I think it's that kind of moving moving something from familiar to slightly mm. unfamiliar territory. Mm. So you bank on the fact that someone recognizes this particular, particular thing within a context, and then it gives it a, a slightly different uh, ta- take or angle. Yeah, that's it.
2: This is a partnership, Yotam. So um, if that's how you auto-linguify a dish, how do you (laughs) moradify a dish? How would you neurofy something?
8: (laughs) I've thought about that and I've come with with a dictionary definition for this. (laughs) (laughs) So you take a lot of herbs (laughs) and you cook them down slowly with oil (laughs) and then you add, you can also put one black lime in there to infuse the flavor, this kind of very astringent, astringent, and black limey flavor and you get something that is really beautiful and green and and wonderfully um, deep in flavor. And then you add some more of those herbs fresh at the very end too. So they add kind of that kind of zingy freshness of fresh herbs. And then you take that wonderful herb mix and you, you serve it with everything. Yeah. preferably with rice
9: yeah <laughs> i think yes i think it's quite appropriate i think he he forgot only the yogurt sometimes. oh yeah a bit of that.
2: <laughs> i have to let you both go in a moment but i want to play a quick lightning round um with you is that okay yeah sure. okay so noor chickpeas canned or dried you only get you can only choose one Dried. because because they're
9: just so glorious. And then you can use the chickpea liquid, you know, to make like a really delicious
2: broth that you cook things in. Yeah. What's your one food vice?
9: I love marzipan. It's my
2: vice. <laughs> marzipan!
9: I love it. No, but not the bad stuff. The good stuff. At least 70%. <laughs> All right, right? Yes. <laughs> my colleague Verena knows what's up because I'm always uh, raiding her stash. So <laughs>
8: Um. So I. I... I eat more cheese than I than I need to eat. Uh, really good, age, age, uh, mars, es, marzipan. I was <laughs> parmesan <laughs> and pecorino are my vices, and I always I and mean, I, I I think those are vices that I'm very proud of. I don't have any problem with that, but I probably consume a bit too much.
2: Fair enough. Okay, each of you, and Nora I'll start with you. What's the best thing you ate this week? The best thing I ate this week.
8: She's on a she's I'm on a, on a weird diet, so I don't I don't think you want to hear that. <laughs> I'm, I'm like
9: on okay. the worst I'm on the worst diet ever, but so like the best thing at this point is like a boiled egg, honestly,
2: <laughs> <laughs> with some cumin and zaatar on it. Yeah, they've got, they've yeah, make actually, a boiled egg always, excellent. I
9: always put zaatar on my boiled egg, so oh, that's if you, so have, good. If you I, haven't had it, then you it's should. Good on Friday, a, oh. uh, a shatta which is like a a hot sauce, fermented chili sauce. Okay. <laughs>
2: Non-dieting, Yotam, best thing you ate this week?
8: I, I just come from, um, from Amsterdam and I had a herring sandwich. So it's like really soft, spongy bread with a herring and, and it's got a raw onion and a gherkin. It's so good.
2: Mm. Okay, Yotam, what should I make for dinner tonight?
8: oh, oh friendly. friendly. so we go for the i've got in front of me the roasted potato with aioli mm-hmm. and buttered pine nuts yes
3: and- really
8: kind of like if you've got potatoes in the house you're probably going to get going to have much of the other ingredients which are just aioli ingredients so you know garlic and oil and egg mm-hmm. and um and uh and that is a takeoff on uh, chips with mayonnaise so it's mm-hmm. got like roasted potatoes a puddle of aioli and then on top of that you've got pine nuts with with paprika Mm. uh, in oil all spooned on top and it's just absolutely delicious i would make that and it's super easy
9: yeah and then if you're looking for more of like a um a one tray bake uh meal for 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 the whole family of go for the the berber chicken with chickpeas and and carrots it's uh it's a whole it's just a whole meal in itself and people love that and then the good thing about that is if you don't have berber spice you can use other spice mixes that you have in your in your kitchen so
2: it's been a real pleasure to speak with both of you i look forward to um making those recipes. I, I When you were both just saying what I should eat for dinner tonight, in my head was going, why not make both on one night? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both for joining us. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you. Thank
9: you for having us.
2: That was my conversation with Yotam Ottolenghi and Noor Murad, who have a book together. It's called Ottolenghi Test Kitchen Shelf Love. Tonight I'll be prepping Christmas things, so no... Uh, Sautar tonight, but maybe tomorrow. Uh, why not um, add something to your mix for your dinner menu, whether it's tonight or another night? You can go to our website where we posted Noor and Yotam's recipe for comfy tonduri chickpeas. Mm. You can find it at cbc.ca Sunday. And with that, we've come to the end of another round of the Sunday Magazine Podcast. Our producers are Levi Garber, Brianna Goss, Andrea Huang, Adam Killick, and Arondee Williams. We had additional help from audio technician Sam McNulty and studio director Danielle Grogan. Our senior producer this week is Pete Mitten. Our executive producer is Brian Colton. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thank you so very much for letting us your ear here on the Sunday Magazine Podcast.